Hello and welcome to the Church Times podcast. I'm Ed Thornton, Assistant Editor. I'm here with Madeline Davies, our Deputy News and Features Editor. This week we're talking about how choirs are drawing children and their families into the church. We're talking about why Christians need to stop hand-wringing and despairing about the frame condition of welfare. And we're talking about how fans of Paddington Bear followed his story to St Paul's Cathedral this week. If you don't already subscribe to the Church Times... Why not try five issues of our print and digital edition for just £5? This includes access to our online archive dating back to 1863. On next week's podcast, we have a special interview with Terry Waite. Sarah Merrick will be talking to him about his new book, Solitude. First, should churches ditch the youth club and put their time, energy and money into choirs? Madeline has been investigating the growth of children's choirs and been hearing some quite exciting stories. Tell us more. Uh, firstly, I don't think they need to necessarily uh, ditch the existing youth clubs and groups. Um, I don't think it's a, a dichotomy on, on either or there. Um, You're looking but... at our cover this week, which says, Who needs a youth club? A choral answer um... to children's ministry. Are you a bit worried that some of our youth worker readers might respond yes, um, harshly was... on Twitter? I think that uh, it's not an either or, as I say. Um, but potentially, um, I think one of the arguments is that, that choirs can be a bit um, underappreciated, perhaps, as um, a route into the church for um, people who might otherwise have no connection with it. Maybe they weren't brought up in a, in a church-going family or they've been away for some time. Um, I've been looking at how choirs can really bring people into the family of the church. I mean, the received wisdom in some parts of the church in recent years has been that let's ditch the organ and robes and bring in guitars, drums, smoke machine, something more akin to a pop concert. I mean, does your research suggest that that is perhaps misguided? Um, So one of the really interesting things I found um, is that actually the um, sort of traditional parish choir, um, which has um, the robes and sits in the chancel, um, isn't kind of as ancient as some people might think. Um, It actually dates back to the early 19th century um, in terms of parish choirs. Obviously, they've been in cathedrals for a lot longer. Um, And the argument there was that they would kind of replace um, what some people saw as um, more dull West Gallery um, singing that they would bring um, kind of beauty um, and a real kind of aesthetic contribution to the church. Um, this all comes from a book by Dean Trevor Beeson, um, who wrote a book called Tuneful Accord. Um, and he really traces what happened to those choirs, um, including sort of a number of historical events, such as the Second World War, which had an impact particularly on recruiting um, boys and young men. And then other changes, um, even to the extent of the creation of state secondary schools, which meant that because people were going perhaps further from their village or their parish, it was more difficult to recruit them into the choir. Um, So really, um, so many things have occurred um, over the past 200 years to shape where we are now. And you've been speaking to some clergy today who've been setting up choirs and and running them. What, What have the results been? So a story which I sort of kick off the feature with, which I really liked, um, Mm. is from Loftus in Cleveland, which is actually one of the most deprived parishes in the country. Um, And I spoke to the rector, Adam Gaunt, there. And he describes how um, when they got a new organist, um, a condition of him joining the church was that he would be able to resurrect this children's choir, which had been disbanded in the late 1960s. And in a short amount of time, so it's only been running for um, just coming up to two years, um, they've already recruited about 20 choristers um, from local schools. And he said that he kind of expected that perhaps it would kind of attract a middle class crowd. Um, and actually, most of these children are um, working class um, children from the surrounding area um, whose teachers just saw it as this amazing opportunity to give them a free musical education. 
Um, and then from there, actually a number of them have, have gone on to become confirmed. Um, and it's actually led to um, bringing down the average age of the congregation and even drawing in their families as well. Yeah, I mean, the piece says this year there were 20 confirmation candidates, the most since 1969. Yeah, which is the very year that the old parish choir was disbanded, which I think is really interesting. That is interesting. Obviously, when I guess if your son or daughter sings in the choir, if you're a parent who perhaps doesn't go to church, perhaps you're going to go along. Yeah, there were some really nice stories from um, Portsmouth Cathedral where I spoke to the director of music, Dr David Price, um, who's a really passionate advocate of, of also installing choirs in parishes. Um, and he said that the um, the mother of one of the choristers who would come from outside the church um, is now even exploring ordination. Um, and the parents of another chorister um, were confirmed at the same time as their son was baptised. Um, so um, really has this kind of... Um, spiralling effect um, beyond just the chorister to their family and, and can really change the life of a church. I mean, Dr Price told you people come to the choir because they want music, but then subsequently find faith through that music. That's really interesting. That was a sort of a recurrent theme as well throughout the feature. Um, somebody that I spoke to um, early on for the feature is Hannah Grivel, um, and her speech at Synod last year um, was one of the things that inspired me to write the feature. Mm. Um, they were talking about renewing the church, um, and she was saying, you know, we've got to look at what actually works, and for their church, um, which is kind of a liberal Anglo-Catholic um, church, um, it had been um, getting young people to join the robed choir. She um, gave me some really um, lovely reflections on um, how singing had had an impact on her faith and how um, singing Bible verses or, or singing the words of hymns can really lead you to reflect on the theology and perhaps understand those words in a different way. I like the story about the priest who was experimenting with Evensong and proposed taking away robes and the children resisted this quite fiercely. Yeah, so a number of the people I spoke to um, were trying to make this point that perhaps we think that um, in order to attract children and young people we have to do something which reflects contemporary society which looks like something you might see on telly which sounds like you might hear on the radio and they feel that that is um, really kind of untested because you need to show children the full range of what's um, possible in music or in art um, in order them for them really to make an informed choice and they found that um, at least for some children actually they love the kind of ceremony and the ritual of dressing up in robes, um, of singing this um, actually quite complex, um, challenging music, um, and also kind of the challenge of singing alongside adults. So um, there's a real responsibility which comes with um, standing alongside adults um, and being expected to perform and sort of keep up your end when you're performing mm. these pieces. I remember that as a, as a child when I was about nine or ten joining my church choir, and um, I don't think the choir any longer exists at that church, but... It was actually a way to take part in the, in the worship of the whole church and feel part of the the whole church rather than just some kind of youth club wing yeah. that kind of went off and did its own thing. And I actually remember a good friend of mine from school who I think was tone deaf actually, but he joined the choir. I remember his mother coming along to watch him sing, and it was a way to introduce him into the life of the church. So. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the people who kind of surprised me who I interviewed is Keith Getty, mm. um, who people might know as the guy who wrote In Christ Alone. Favourite wedding him of many. Yeah, um, he, um, I, you know, might be associated with kind of modern worship, um, but he was actually very critical of the modern worship movement. 
and even described it as having caused carnage. Wow. Um, he feels that it's very individualistic, or mm. can be, and that some of the songs that are created have um, what he describes as sort of very lightweight um, words, and also kind of have been composed to perform on the radio, rather than being something which an entire congregation can perform as a body. And he's really passionate about bringing back congregational singing mm. and writing hymns which the entire church, including children, can sing, um, rather than something which he would argue, is sort of more individualistic. Yeah, when I've been in certain kind of more charismatic evangelical churches where you, where you realise the key in which the song is being sung is yeah. so high, and probably for a professional singer to sing for a radio or in a concert, um, mm. particularly if there aren't so many of you there, it's much harder to reach that high key. Um, mm. And I've also been places where there, perhaps there's a baptism and people who don't regularly come to church, and they're basically just standing watching what's essentially a concert. And you just wonder if something's been lost there or actually the opportunity to sing in a key that it's a bit more inclusive rather than it just being for the kind of professional singers. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting that um, having interviewed a couple of modern worship composers, they will often talk about how inspired they are by traditional hymns. Um, I remember interviewing Matt Redman, um, and he's got huge appreciation for um, mm. his inheritance as somebody composing for church music, which I think Keith Getty does as well. Something I thought was quite interesting that he said was that he's concerned that if you have sh- what he describes as kind of shallow songs, does that kind of affect your understanding of faith? And um, as life goes on and difficult things happen, if your theology has kind of been um, absorbed from fairly kind of simple hymns, does that kind of leave you a bit ill-equipped to cope? Um, Which I thought was quite an interesting point. Something which um, Tom Daggett, who is um, leading the music education programme at St Paul's, um, said, was also that children quite like singing complex um, hymns. He was kind of frustrated that um, in one school um, an entire term was spent learning one hymn and he feels that actually they could have learned it in two minutes. Um, And that also when the school had tried to encourage them to sing something which they thought of as more child-friendly, these children sort of rebelled and actually wanted to sing something that they'd learnt um, at their parish church in Latin. Good for them. Um, So, yeah, there were just lots of like really interesting anecdotes like that from from parishes and hopefully we'll get some letters and find out um, what other people are up to. Next, Madeline was at Lambeth Palace today for the launch of a new book called For Good, The Church and the Future of Welfare by Sam Wells, Vicar of St Martin in the Fields in London and Russell Rook and David Barclay of the Good Faith Partnership. It's published by Canterbury Press. Madeline, could you tell us more about the book? The um, book is kind of looking at the church's relationship with the welfare state, um, marking um, 70 years since the beverage reforms. It's quite a um, punchy book, I would say, in that it can be quite critical of the way in which the church has um, received and worked alongside the welfare state. So it suggests that after the state took over some of the things which the church had traditionally provided, um, the church kind of became more inward-looking and it lost um, what they described as the lifeblood of social action. Um, And they talk about perhaps it's the time uh, to stop outsourcing our conscience to the government and start resuming a quest to see the face of Christ in the poor. Is there any danger that some of this has a slightly rose-tinted view of, of society pre-welfare states when you sometimes hear people say when the, when the church was you know, educating people and 
caring for the sick. Some would argue that the welfare state provided something vital. The book doesn't really leave you in any doubt that the state, the state definitely has a role to play. Mm-hmm. Um, and it says that there are um, certain deficits or gaps in society which it's definitely the state's place to fill. So um, caring for the, the sick, for example. What it argues is that the, the welfare state can't um, do certain things and that the church is uniquely placed to provide them. So it kind of associates the welfare state with um, a bureaucracy and with treating people as kind of these individuals who are kind of bonded only by kind of an economic transaction. Um, and they argue that the, ch- the church and, and civil society can provide something else. They can provide relationship. Um, they can provide um, kind of mutual reliance, a genuine encounter and friendship. Some MPs were at the launch, um, Conservative and Labour. Is that right? What did they seem to make of the book? There was Stephen Timms, um, who people will be um, aware of as the chair of Christians on the left, and then Gary Streeter, who's a Conservative MP, who is the chair of Christians in Parliament, often appear together and often actually agree on quite a few things. Um, I thought it was interesting that Gary Streeter kind of jokingly referred to himself as the nasty right-wing Tory um, and said that um, even as that person, um, he didn't want to do welfare on the cheap. So that could be a danger of what the book argues for. Um, And churches have to be careful that they're not kind of being co-opted by the state to do these things um, at a cheaper price. They need to be doing the things that they as a church are uniquely called to do. In your story, Stephen Timms is quoted saying, I do not agree that opening up spaces for churches to step in is an argument for scaling back the welfare state. So he sees no... Problem. Yeah, he also told this um, really distressing story about a woman he'd met in Liverpool. She had had to wait six weeks um, for the start of her universal credit payments after losing her job, and she'd been trying to survive on tap water. She became suicidal um, and was eventually referred to NHS services. But then, slightly later, was also referred um, to a church, I think, um, to access the food bank. And he talked really about how the friendships and the relationships that she'd made there had really helped to transform her life. So he was really um, agreeing with the book that the church can provide that kind of personal touch and um, kind of really healing relationships, but also kind of stressing that, you know, the NHS there was part of the picture and that, you know, had the welfare state been um, working as it's supposed to do, um, perhaps she wouldn't have found herself in that position in the first place. The book sets out five possible um, relationships between church and state, and they range from contradiction Um, So really challenging um, and critiquing the state where it's failing right through to co-option. And they suggest that um, co-option can mean that the church ends up carrying out what it describes as deficit-related activities. And it gives um, food banks as one example. Um, Food banks are doing something which um, is filling in a gap um, which has been created by um, arguably the failure of the state. And so churches who are kind of operating that space have to be really careful Um, and actually Sam Wells who was speaking at the event as one of the authors said that anybody who sets up a food bank um, should be doing that very consciously thinking at some point this will no longer exist you shouldn't be running a food bank thinking we're going to run this indefinitely. Reminds me a little bit of Rowan Williams when he was Archbishop of Canterbury saying that the big society shouldn't be used as a sort of excuse to cut back on the welfare state and just because it's good that churches and voluntary groups step in. 
Yeah, um, I was looking back at our archive and how we've um, covered this conversation about the Big Society really since it was launched by David Cameron um, with the coalition government and um, such a range of views, I think, from Christians about perhaps the dangers of um, the proposal but also the opportunities. I think there's definitely been anxiety that um, the church could be seen to sort of regard cuts as this great opportunity to fill those gaps and is that actually quite a problem narrative. Let's have a look around the rest of this week's paper. Madeline, you've written a lovely story about the memorial service for Michael Bond, the author of Paddington Bear, which was at St Paul's Cathedral on Tuesday. It's alongside the discovery that the final Paddington Bear book that um, Michael Bond wrote is actually set at St Paul's Cathedral um, and it features Paddington um, being mistaken for a choir boy, um, very appropriate for our feature this week. (laughs) And Um, There's also some footage which St Paul's have shared of the Queen's 90th um, birthday, which was last year. Um, She was born in the same year as Michael Bond and um, he was invited to um, contribute some reflections for her birthday service about what it was like to be born in 1926. And a really um, lovely ending to his reflections um, where he quoted from Louise Haskins' poem God Knows, um, which was read out by George VI in his Christmas broadcast in 1939. And one of the passages says, Truly, if you put your hand into the hand of God, that shall be to you better than light and safer than a known way. And he talked about how it was only really as he um, neared his 90th birthday that he'd come to know that. I'd just like to point out a comment piece we have this week on the Paradise Papers and Tax Havens by Jonathan Stevenson, who's from the campaign group Global Justice Now. He's kind of sets out the moral case for tax, but then also talks about how the campaign against... um, tax havens and excessive tax avoidance really needs to step up a gear and people need to join together and he says so long as tax avoidance remains legal people will do it that's why it's so important to seize the opportunity provided by the paradise papers and finally we just wanted to say congratulations to the team at church house who've launched the official revamped website for the church of england this week um led by adrian harris who's been um, interviewed in the past on this podcast it's at churchofengland.org um, and it'd be great to hear your views about it That's it for this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find lots more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, www.churchtimes.co.uk. If you're not yet a subscriber, why not take a look at our latest introductory offer, one month of our digital package and five issues of the paper for just £5. Go to www.churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. The music, as always, was by Sort After Sounds. Don't forget to tune in next Friday for our next episode, and thanks for listening.